Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and I'm very delighted today to have John Davis with us from the Northwest Patient Resource Center in Washington State. And as you know, we've covered different aspects of medical cannabis for patient care. And I was watching many videos of John and his colleagues talk about the transformation happening in the United States of America with several states opening up the ability for people to have cannabis and to use cannabis, both who are ill and who are not ill. I was so impressed with his stewardship and the responsibility in which he's moving in this that I called him and had to have him on the show. He has been working on drug policy for over 20 years. He is the chairman of the board of directors of the Seattle Hemp Fest. He is also the chairman of the Coalition for Cannabis Standard of Ethics and the National Cannabis Industry Association. I really invited him to talk about cannabis leadership, what the stewardship is requiring now, what the sensitive and delicate points are of the task, and what he feels is the real probability that cannabis is going to open up throughout the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome John Davis to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, first of all, I got to say, wow, thank you for what you're doing. I'm not a smoker myself, but I want to thank you for the medical side of it in particular because I've had people's lives saved from using cannabis, medical-grade cannabis hemp oil. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, anytime. You know, most of our preparations before the 37 Tax Act were uh, cannabis-based. I mean, uh, cannabis as medicine is nothing new. But, you know, for many people, and I have to tell you that I had to face in the last year and a half that I, who feel myself to be very receptive, very open, really was brainwashed about it, that it wasn't. It's so funny how, you know, when you're told things as a younger person and you're told things over and over, even as an adult, you don't even know sometimes that you believe stuff without ever checking it out. And when I rolled up my sleeves and did my own due diligence on this I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised, but saddened at how many people unnecessarily go to their death because they can't have this. You know, I watched you and I watched your colleagues at a press conference in your state, and I understand that in 17 states, people don't go to jail anymore for having it or using it, but they are fined. Is that still true? Yeah, and the laws here are evolving, but I mean, we've come down this road of this failed policy of prohibition that we we tried to resurrect after alcohol prohibition. And I was talking to a colleague not too long ago, you know, and he was like, prohibition has done nothing for us. And I was like, well, actually, no, this prohibition has shown us without a shadow of a doubt that the policy of prohibition does not work to actually prohibit substance. Do you think it's true in most things, including for alcohol, when there was alcohol prohibition? It didn't stop it then either. Yeah, well, look at alcohol prohibition. There are studies that were done by the government on the effectiveness of the policy, the Wickersham study during prohibition. It doesn't prohibit anything. What it does is tend to increase youth use, tends to increase youth abuse. It increases youth availability to other substances. It increases binge use, it increases addiction, it increases harms associated with having a non-consumer safe substance. It just doesn't work. Say what you will about a substance, feel how you will about a substance. A policy of prohibition may make you feel good, but it doesn't do anything to stop the substance. Right. 
in many of the videos that I watched about the subject with you and your colleagues, both in your organizations and outside, I didn't hear one question asked. Now, maybe I missed a video of that, but I have a big concern about GMO crops. And so does the rest of the world, because we know what happens to people who utilize them. Now, I know that Bill Gates is a big promoter and investor in GMO seeds and crops and everything. And I know that Jamin is a separate person. But in terms of what you're putting forth and in this standardization, are you guys going to be involved in GMO marijuana? Well, no. I mean, that's not our intention at all. You know, there's plenty of strains out there that work just fine. And most of the time, the the reason for GMO is to make commodity an agricultural product resistant to certain pesticides or herbicides. And you no, know, it's not our intention. I want to I want to I want to keep uh, the supply as consumer safe as possible. Do you think it's possible in the stewardship that you can make it your business that the standardization process will not allow GMO seeds and plants in the mix? Well, all I can do is do what I'm going to do. I mean, an industry is being born, and what is that industry going to look like? Well, we're trying to steer it the best we can. Right, right. No, I understand that. But are you the leader that you are in this on the front end, right? And you've been at this a long time. Mm -hmm. But are you going to make it also part of your business that the plants that people get and that are standardized are not GMO plants? No, I have no intention of pursuing anything on a GMO level. As I say, there's many strains out there. They work just fine. There's high CBD, there's high THC, and I have no intention of following a a GMO model. No, I understand that. I mean, I sense that. On a personal note, I have a sense that you will not want that. But my question is, the pharmaceutical industry basically filed patents on the molecular structure of cannabis, okay? Federal government did it. Right, right. And basically, they, yeah, and I think the patents that the government filed for giving their brand of cannabis to people or making it allowable, it's synthetic cannabis. It's not the original cannabis. You're not involved in any of that, nor your colleagues. Is that right? At least you can answer for you. No, nor will I be. Okay, great. uh, Cannabis has been in the service of mankind for at least 15,000 years that we've been able to demonstrate Sativa means in the service of man. Sativas are cultivated crops. This is one of our oldest crops. We've evolved with it. There's no improving on that particular nature. I mean, this has been thousands of years of interaction. Yes. I'm not about to mess with that. In terms of the growing of the cannabis in Washington State, where is it at right now? In other words, is it legal or is it illegal or where is it? Is it a gray zone? That's a great question. Um, Thank you. The, all marijuana is illegal federally in all quantities for any purpose. But what you've got to understand is that Washington and Colorado have taken a great step forward in basically saying, look, okay, sure, it's illegal, uh, like New York did in alcohol prohibition, saying, yeah, sure, it's illegal federally, but we're no longer going to enforce. And, in fact, we're going to view the substance as legal. So the federal government, if they want to, they can exercise their will by closing down any of it, including Washington State. Washington State could certainly be viewed as culpable, you know, under RICO. Uh, Right. The question is, is the federal government going to do anything? You've got to understand that there's law and there's policy. Law is what's written down and codified. Policy is how that law is interacted with. 
Like in the case of uh, Amsterdam, all marijuana is illegal in all quantities for any purpose in Amsterdam. However, oh, I didn't know that. I had no idea. I thought that was the place where it isn't. How's that interesting? <laughs> well, the, the policy is that it's tolerated. In fact, it's called a tolerance policy. So even though that it is illegal federally in Holland, it's tolerated so long as certain principles are followed. And that's what you're seeing here happen in the States. The United States and Holland are signatures of the 1961 Single Convention Treaty, which makes it international law, international treaty, that cannabis is illegal. Wow, I didn't even know that. Are you familiar with Rick Simpson and the people he's assisted who were quite sick? I am. Rick actually did a thing with Jamin, a medical thing with Jamin down in uh, San Francisco, and I'm very familiar with Rick Simpson Oil. We carry it here at Northwest Patient Resource Center. Thank God. His process and knowledge saved a friend of mine's life. You know, I'm, I'm a science guy, and I like to see real hardcore studies with real hardcore science. And unfortunately, that's been blocked in the United States for the past 60 years. But certainly, if you look at the anecdotal evidence, there's very strong evidence. And then there's studies, although those studies are somewhat flawed in that they can't get a legal supply of cannabis to study. But tumor reduction is certainly one thing to look at with cannabinoid extracts. What do you think of the company, is it Dixie in Colorado, that came up with their product line? I'm just curious what you think about it. Dixie Elixir, shout out to Trip Kieber. He is a fellow <laughs> board member, National Cannabis Industry Association. Fantastic. Yeah, they're doing great things in Colorado there. They're doing importation of CBD products. CBD is a cannabinoid, but it's not THC. Right. And so it's not listed the same. And CBD has a number of interesting and compelling properties without the associated quote-unquote high that's usually associated with THC. CBD is not going to get you high. And, I mean, it has antipsychotic, neuroprotective, vasorelaxant, antispasmodic, antiproliferative, which is the cancer, antibacterial, analgesic, anti-inflammatory, immunosuppressive qualities that are just really interesting to me. And I'm really, one of the things that I hope to do with my projects and in, in pushing this forward is to get some real science looking at this. As I say, this is one of the oldest cultivated plants known to man. The hemp seed has one of the plant kingdom's perfect protein for humans. I mean, this is not happenstance. You know, we have a endocannabinoid system that just fits perfectly with the cannabinoids that are in this plant. This is something that humans have lived with for eons. Isn't that exciting? When I found out we had an endocannabinoid system that we have these receptors in our body, I was pretty shocked. I had no idea. The thing about it is that's not just limited to your brain. And in your brain, the way that they're set up, they're not in your lizard brain. And so can't affect your breathing rates and you can't overdose on cannabis. But beyond that, your T cells, your immune system has receptors, CB2 receptors. You know, the science was suppressed for many years. 
and now the science is kind of bursting forth a little bit and and people are looking at this this is the next big thing in understanding who we are it's fascinating what do you think of the work that the owner of hemp inc is doing is that uh, Bruce Perlowen? Yes, Bruce Perlowen. Oh, yeah, Bruce. I've been kind of following them. Really, the companies that I follow are the companies that more touch cannabis. I mean, there's a number of different investment opportunities that involve ancillary items, you know, right. computer programs or what have you, that are a little bit more risk-adverse in that they... It's more for, like, manufacturing clothing and yeah. products. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's material and, for products. You know, I, I wish those people well, but it's not really where I'm focused. Right. Where I'm focused is where a lot of people see more risk in, you know, actually interacting with what is in the United States as Schedule One substance. Some people feel that the reason the substance is prohibited is that the CIA runs the drug trade and uses this and other substances to pay for the black budget. In other words, that our own CIA is involved in this all over the world. And it's not just a drug cartel. It's that our own agencies are involved in this. What's your feeling? Well, I I certainly think that there's tons of evidence for that. In fact, the American quote-unquote crack epidemic was due to importation of cocaine by the Central Intelligence Agency back in the 80s. But are they overly involved in the cannabis trade? Hmm, I don't think that that's... Probably not the main thing. Not no, so much not that, but... Thing, but... I mean, sure. I don't think that that's the reason that right. prohibition came about. I think yeah. it's more because we wanted to have these moral laws, you know, back in the, the early 1800s is when we started to kind of try to make, quote-unquote, sin illegal. We tried that with alcohol, and it crashed and burned horribly. And so I think that we said, oh, okay, well, it won't work for alcohol because that substance is too ingrained in society and, you know, the rest of the world is not on board with us. So we tried Prohibition too. You know, in 1937, when the Tax Act was passed, smoked cannabis was almost unheard of in the United States, way less than 1% of the population. And cannabis preparations were available at any corner market or any corner pharmacy with no age restriction. Wow. There just weren't any problems. But we enacted this policy of prohibition for that reason. And, you know, and there was competing interest in there. Everyone had a stake. But what was the upshot of our policy of prohibition? We are 5% of the world's population, a little less right now and we consume 25% of the world's cannabis. That's what Prohibition does. Interesting. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I want you to consider that the water we drink is crucial to our health and well-being. I also want you to consider that chronic dehydration is the precursor to a disease state. The work of Dr. Batman Jellage demonstrates this. Many of us are trying to find alkalized water to drink, thinking that's going to be the answer to impacting our health and well-being. Most of us don't know that if we cannot get our body hydrated, we cannot achieve continuous alkalinity, which is a promoter of health and well-being. The physics of water is totally distinct from the chemistry of water. And until you understand what that means to health and wellness, you can be lost in trying to understand what is good healthy water to drink. 
Dr. Jacques Benveniste was right when he said that water has memory and is alive. And Dan Nelson is right when he says there's a distinction between irrigating the body and hydrating it. And most of us attempt to hydrate it by drinking more water. Cells cannot assimilate most of the water that we drink, so our cells are dehydrated all the time. Learn the science about this by going to the Positron Group and consider purchasing Wayback Water, the fast track to hydration by Dan Nelson, who's a physicist, an educator, and a man who's committed that we have healthy, remarkable drinking water. Go to waybackwater.com or call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. And back to the show. What do you think about the FDA view and perspective on cannabis? A lot of people say that the FDA is scared to death that this will become legal and that on the medicinal side, it will help too many people and it will be a threat to the pharmaceutical companies. I actually reached out. I've got a really good intelligence network because, you know, what I do can be dangerous. I would say so. I hope you have good security. (laughs) Oh, I have excellent security. (laughs) You're going to need really standing right now in a bank on steroids. (laughs) Um, But I actually got some people at a high mid level in the pharmaceutical industry. I reached out to them through an informal network. And then I talked to them and I said, hey, look, you know, you're the pharmaceutical company. You know, a number of people have been speculating on what you think about this whole thing. So what do you think? And what they said was really interesting. Because they said, oh, well, of course, we've discussed this, but we kind of looked at it. And the thing about it is anyone that wants to be smoking marijuana currently is, you know. Yeah. And and maybe there's a little bit, you know, a couple of percentage wiggle room. But, you know, if they want to be smoking cannabis, they already are. So if there's competition with our other substances, you know, it's already there. And do we want to get into the cannabis game? Absolutely not, because in order to be sold as a pharmaceutical, You would either have to take it through the FDA process, which who's going to spend the money to take cannabis through the FDA process when it's going to end up just being public domain, or to get it considered what's called grass, ironically enough, generally regarded as safe. (laughs) Um, That's wild. And they are not interested, and they don't want to be branded that way. So pharmaceutical companies... They have their pharmaceuticals. They're at least the the people that I spoke to. Right. You know, however, the policing agency for all of them is the FDA, the front end. I think what you said is fascinating and interesting, but I think the FDA front end, which it's very expensive to push anything through, A, and B, if it doesn't service the pharmaceutical industry, it's probably not going to get through. But it may be both, both what you found out and a part of this. Who knows? Right. You know, interestingly enough, a major governmental institution in the United States contacted me not too long ago and actually came out to my shop, which kind of shocked me because they're a big United States bureaucracy. And, you know, to save them, I won't mention exactly which That's bureaucracy okay. because it was interesting. They came out and I was like, so what do you want to meet with me for? And they're like, you know, well, we're looking into the future, and it looks like this legalization is is going to take off. And medical is in 21 states and D.C. We don't care so much what people are doing on their off hours, but what we do care about is 
are people impaired, and this is an agency that has sensitive positions. Yeah, I hear you. And they, what they cared about was, are people impaired on the job? Can we find that out? Because, you know, with current testing, you're not finding out if someone's impaired at the time. They're right. finding out if they have been impaired. So <laughs> the funny part about that is, you know, <laughs> I, I answered their questions. I gave them a look around. I, I showed them about cognitive testing and electronic testing and said, look, it doesn't matter why you're impaired, even sleep deprivation, it matters that you're impaired. And at the end of the thing, I'm like, can I, uh, can I tell people you were here? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, yeah, my follow-up question to that is, so where did you get my name? They said, oh, well, you know, we're a federal government agency. We went to the Department of Justice, <laughs> which was great because right. the Department of Justice apparently gave my name, so they know who I am. Sure. But my my point is the federal government even is evolving on this. That's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's a good question, actually, but it's also a question of that somebody can be on too much cough syrup and go into work sick and jeopardize people. You and I both know, and the audience knows, that they're catching even pilots who are flying our planes drunk in the cockpit. Right. So I think it's a universal concern that is not limited to anything. It's not limited to this or that substance. Sleep deprivation can be just as bad as intoxication on uh, a number of substances. Nobody wants people that can cause issues to be impaired at work. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, us that are moving the drug policy ball forward are not doing so to just, uh, you know, hey, drugs should be freely available and everyone should be doing it and, you know, everyone get high all the time. That's not the case. It's about responsibility, responsible use, and overall about sensible drug policy. I have a child. She is 11. I love that girl. And I look at what prohibition does, you know, and I talk to her openly about it. And she talks to me as 11 years old about the drug availability in her schools. Wow. And it's craziness that we've gone down. And look, our policy may make us feel good. Oh, look, we're anti-substance. Okay, well, but your policy is making cocaine and methamphetamine sold in middle school. Is that intelligent? I think that some parents may say, I'd rather it be difficult for people than it to be readily available. You know what I'm saying? So as a parent... It is readily available. Our policy makes it readily available to kids. Look, I grew up in this system... And even at a young age, I looked at this and I was just thinking to myself, it's craziness because I distinctly remember the way to get alcohol when I was underage. You would go and get other drugs and trade them to adults for alcohol because it was easy for me to get the other drugs. It was harder for me to get alcohol. It was harder for the adults to get drugs than me. So as a child, those substances the banned substances were actually a lot easier for me to get. And I remember my youth. I was never into the the hard drugs or anything like that, but I saw them. They were available to me. I had people, you know, when I was a kid buying a little uh, cannabis, those were available. So to say um, we have to have a prohibition policy so it's not so available is kind of lunacy. And as I say, look at the Wickersham report from uh, alcohol prohibition. Prohibition doesn't prohibit anything. Look, we It are, criminalizes it, basically. It criminalizes it. It doesn't prohibit it. It criminalizes it, right? 
Yeah, you, you, you and that makes me so it. sad. All the people that are in jail for smoking pot—it's a tragedy. It's just in the terrible. United States here, we call ourselves the land of the free, and like to tell people that you know the, the rest of the world hate us for our freedom. We have more people in prison per capita than any other nation in the history of history. What do you think the numbers are, John? I think it's 738 per 100,000, which to put in perspective, and I'm not in front of a computer or book or anything, but to put it in perspective, like Norway is like 71. The Nazis did not lock people up at that rate. Stalin, you know, we're always talking about Stalin's gulags. We have more people in prison now. And then you get into the injustice of the whole system. African-Americans in the United States are roughly 8% of the population, 9% of the drug-using population, 56% of the drug war prisoners. And the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, United States Constitution, it doesn't prohibit slavery. Read it. It prohibits slavery without due process. Right now, we have more African-Americans in prison than we had slaves during the height of slavery. That's stunning. Yeah. Wow. And people have got to realize this. We're looking at our economy. This is not a left-wing issue. We jail more people than any other civilization in the history of civilization. This is the most. We are paying to keep those people in prison. Over 50% are in for crimes that have no complainants drug crimes mostly and not only do we have the expense of putting those people in prison long term but we also have the loss of productivity associated with it plus the loss of productivity that you get you know if you have children out there and you're worried about the children i would be worried that my child would get caught you know absolutely it's unbelievable they're just taken to jail it's frightening my criminal record is completely clean because i didn't get caught I'm an American. I mean, that's where we're all standing. But if you get caught, you have the stigma of getting caught, and you have that on your record, and that leads you so that you can't... You can't work, or you can't get jobs easily. Right, you're not productive. There was a global marijuana trade, and the UN estimated that there's a $142 billion industry. What do you think the prison complex industry is? I mean, isn't that an industry, too? A big one? Yeah, we privatized our prison. Probably one of the all-time worst decisions that we've ever made because prisons only profit when there's prisoners. And you have that judge in Texas that was convicted uh, a couple years ago. He was being paid off basically by the prison system to take children, minors, under 18, your and my children, and put them in the prison system for... Um, year after year term yeah yeah because that was more profitable to keep their prisons terrible populated and that's yeah this was also <laughs> i think on the east coast too there was a couple of judges that were found doing the same thing again with the wickersham commission report from alcohol prohibition what does prohibition do it increases corruption <laughs> it increases vice it increases organized crime it's an unregulated market Are you going to also be involved as a commercial participant in some of the projects with this? And by the way, I don't have an issue with it. Sometimes people think, oh, if you have an involvement or you've made a commitment on a commercial level, you can't be really stewarding something purely. 
In some cases, that's true, but in a lot of cases, it's not true. You can have hybrid interests where you're helping steward something on a leadership level for the many, and you're opening up commercial capability. But if you are involved beyond what you're doing right now in Washington, are you concerned about the interstate commerce issue that the feds could come down on you and your colleagues and those that are involved with all these statutes you may not know about on an interstate level? This can get really tricky. Well, yeah. I mean, this is a very difficult and dangerous situation, but, you know, you study it the best you can, you interact with the system the best you can, and you go forward the best you can. Look, if I was money motivated, I did very, very well in the straight world. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I had a very, very promising, very developed career when I actually left that world four and a half years ago to pursue this. What were you doing? What were you doing, if you don't mind me asking? I was a professional project manager. I built buildings, $100 million projects. I left that world and I came into this. And this is a business. And yes, I expect it to make money. And yeah, I need this to be a larger entity because of exactly that. I've got 49 more states and 195 more viable countries that I need to move into. Why? to profit? Well, that would be great if I did, you know. Everyone's got to pay their bills and everything. Sure, sure. Really, if I have an international brand, we have international legalization. We have a switch globally from a failed policy that frankly offends me on many, many levels. You're supposed to be free. And the United States government makes this interesting statement, really, in their laws to say, is your body yours or is your body your government's? The United States has made it quite clear that your body is your government's property. That's actually very clear, and I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Thank you for bringing this up. The government gets to tell you what substances you can put into your body. I have a real problem with that. You know, in California, John, they changed the laws a few years ago where anybody's children in the grammar schools that the schools can decide you will be vaccinated. You have no say as a parent anymore. None. No matter what the science shows us. Right. That's not okay. I mean, to trust that your government is going to be a better parent than you are, to trust your government that they're going to know better about what substances you introduce in your body than you do. I mean, I have a real problem with that. In fact, my father brought me up on the Founding Fathers. He was actually a diehard Republican. Um, (laughs) But he brought me up on how the nation was formed and who formed it and what they were up against. And these were a bunch of crazy, crazy people with a crazy idea that a government could be of the people, which was crazy at the time. And they put themselves up against the world's largest military, which is why John Hancock's signature was so famously big, was because he was saying, okay, yeah, by signing this document, we can all die. (laughs) But I'll show you guys, here's my signature, they can read it. But those principles of those crazy, crazy people that started this experiment that means something to me. And to see where the United States has come so far from the vision of the the founding fathers, it's kind of disturbing. And, you know, all I can do as an individual is push back in whatever ways I can. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You're smart. You pay attention to evidence. Go get pure vitamin C at purecllc.com. Prevent colds. And if you have them, get rid of them quickly. If you have heart disease, take pure vitamin C. If you don't have heart disease, prevent it. And above all, make sure you get this brand, 
of vitamin C that is GMO-free, corn-free, China-free, and manufactured in the United States of America. Pure C LLC. Go get yourself some. And back to the show. Are other people, John, concerned for you and your colleagues on a personal note, given the leadership that you're stepping into? Yeah. That doesn't stop me from doing what I'm doing. And and look, I'm very careful about what it is I do. I work with a lot of government officials. I work very closely with the city of Seattle. I work with the mayor's office and the city attorney and the city council. I work with the chief of police. I work with the county sheriff, the county council. You know, I work with my state. I think it's great. You're doing a really whole systems process that would make it work. I think in one of the articles I read, you talked about having environmental concerns, that there needs to be an energy code followed, I guess, in the growing of the plant. I'm not sure I understood that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I permitted, I thought that it was the first permit that had ever been pulled for production of cannabis in Washington State. Actually, it was the second. I found a colleague that had done one during the Bush administration under an agricultural use, but it was kind of a wild thing. But when I actually got a building permit for a marijuana facility that I was very straight up about, you know, this facility is to produce cannabis. Right. I found that energy code was one of the hardest things to comply with because indoor growing is very energy intensive. And, you know, there's things like you can't simply exhaust conditioned air. People work with carbon dioxide. And yet carbon dioxide is food for plants. That's what's so interesting about the whole thing. Well, yeah, but I think there's plenty of food for plants around right now. (laughs) I'd like to see a little less personally. Since you're a science guy, I'll count on you'll get further into the science and you'll be at peace. Let me ask you about Diego Pacier. What is the distinction of what they're going to be doing aside from the branding of marijuana across different areas? They're creating a brand, right? That's what they're doing. They want to create the high-end market for you know, once cannabis is legalized, you got to understand it's going to be just like anything else. To begin with, it'll be roughly equivalent to alcohol, and brands will emerge. And with most things, there's a high end. And Diego, uh, when it was originally formed, they wanted to get that high-end market. They just wanted to have that niche. And so that's what they're going to fulfill. But, you know, my company is going to be more mid-market. Let's call it pedestrian. Um, Sure. My company is to emerge markets. My company is to show successes where I'm at so that we can take those successes to other markets and say, hey, look, here's what you live in right now. Here is prohibition. Here's what this policy is doing to your children. Here are the stats. Here are the stats when I started in Washington. Here are the stats now. We haven't done it yet, but look at Portugal. Look at Holland. Look at Amsterdam in particular. Portugal decriminalized more than a decade ago all drugs. What happened? Youth use went down. Youth availability went down. The glamorization of the How come that isn't news all across the world? That is such a fascinating thing. I had no idea Portugal did that. Yeah, yeah. I was panelist on the Cannabis Policy Summit down in Mexico, and I think it was a former Mexican Minister of Health during that was asking me, so why are Mexico's usage rates lower than the United States? It's like, well, because it's a little-known fact that in Mexico you've decrimmed. It's but is that really true at a legal level? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's been that way for many years. 
right? But because Mexico in particular is a border state to the United States, which is the largest drug consumer by far in the world, since 2006, we've had 80,000 direct deaths attributable directly to the drug war, hundreds of journalists, over a thousand children directly, and these are the deaths that they're able to tie to it. It was 30-some people six months ago, or maybe a little bit more, uh, maybe a year, but El Chapo Guzman, allegedly, I suppose, they uh, had a dump truck, more than 30 beheaded corpses just dumped on the side of the road. Yeah, we don't see a lot of drug war violence up here because if you saw the the United States, if they saw drug body counts up here, they would care. Body counts down there, they don't care so much about. So there's a pitched war, and children are dying because of this policy. What do you feel about former Mexican President Fox and his stepping in to help with the leadership of this I mean, on some level, it's a good thing, but for most Americans, they won't understand why. Why is he stepping in? It is my high honor to say that Vicente is a friend of mine. And why is he stepping in? For exactly that. Uh, I've had long conversations, actually, uh, with uh, President Fox. There's violence down there. Look, Vicente is not a druggie by any standard. I mean, he's anti-prohibition as a policy. Mexico, in particular, is hit hard by the drug war. People are dying. Corruption is high. Journalists are beheaded because they are reporting on the stuff that's going down there in a system that corrupt and that violent. I'm confused in the sense that if Mexico has opened it up and it's not illegal... It's decriminalized for personal possession. That does not make you oh, know, I get trafficking it. or large grows or production. That does not make that legal. Wouldn't it be great if Mexico joined the U.S. and it was completely decriminalized and instead of it being illegal, it was legalized? And then you could have all these crops. You could have industries for clothing. You could have crops for medicine for people's private use. What do you think of that? Absolutely. Look, this prohibition is ridiculous. Alcohol, yeah, that's a hard drug. I will give them that. They gave their college try on that. didn't work. But cannabis? There's never been a single overdose from cannabis. It is one of the least harmful psychoactive substances there is. Hempfest is uh, here in Seattle. I chair the the board of that organization and we have 300,000 people that get together annually and attend our event and there are no arrests there are very few problems even with that high amount and you talk to the police and they all say the same thing it's like yeah I'd much rather be here than you know at a Mariners game where people are drinking because there's issues associated with it sure when you get beyond okay yeah cannabis can have some psychoactivity but it also is one of the first things that paper was made of it has been a textile crop for generations the first cannabis laws in what is now the United States was that growing cannabis was mandatory if you were a landowner. That was the first cannabis law here. I had no idea. When was that? That's interesting. In the 1700s. Before our time. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was mandatory because it's such a useful crop. And even when you get all the stock for cordage, when you shake it out, you also have the seed. And the seed can be used for oils is a very nutritious food. 
it's just a great crop. You know, you can make more paper per acre with cannabis crop than you can with trees. And you can do that annually as opposed to waiting 20 years for the trees to grow out. The massive clear cuts are not needed. We need to think about what's logical here. And then once we do, we'll see, well, obviously, you know. uh, I think you're going to have a lot of support. So many people are ready now. I think more people get it than not. What do you think? Yes? Well, did you see the recent Gallup polling? 58% believe in legalization with 36 against or something like that. So, I mean, even in the past, since December, in the past year, I mean, that's gone up 10 points. And people are realizing, you know, okay, Republicans or Democrats, you go up to someone and say, hey, the war on drugs winning. Everyone says no. (laughs) Right. Because it's widely known that our policy is an abject failure. Certainly it's not prohibiting drugs from anything. In fact, the nation has kind of become a drug nation. Same kind of statistics. We're less than 5% of the world's population. We use 25% of the world's drugs because we've become a little obsessed with it because that's what prohibition does. John, why do you think that the Washington State marijuana czar, Mark, is it Kleiman? (laughs) Kleiman. Why is he skeptical about what you're all doing? I don't get it. Who is he and why is he skeptical and why are articles being written about his not really empowering what you're doing? Well, I'll try to tread lightly here because I I know Mark and I like Mark. Firstly, you got to understand that Mark is a deeply funny person, but he's very dry in his humor. And he looks at things a little bit differently and he's a skeptic by nature. It's ironic that he was put in the position of being the quote-unquote drug czar, which he was just a consultant to the Liquor Control Board, because... He doesn't believe, and he's published many articles that say you can't legalize cannabis through initiative. (laughs) Mark is a drug war skeptic, drug war critic. He has an opinion, just like everyone else, and I like Mark, and hey, everyone is entitled to their opinion. I think that Mark is a little bit more risk-adverse than I am. (laughs) Okay, for sure, for sure. What about Dr. Bob Melamede in Colorado? Are you familiar with his work? Yeah, I know Bob. What do you think about what he's doing? There's a lot going on to the point that I can't keep up on the details of what everyone's doing. Sure, but he's a big player in, I guess, bringing it into a pharmaceutical capacity, correct? Which I don't really understand exactly. The VDEA, the court ruling that came out last year, this year? Anyways, I I dry read these court rulings. (laughs) That's the kind of person I am, I suppose. Americans for Safe Access petitioned the Drug Enforcement Administration to reschedule cannabis. And the ruling that came out, which was called ASA VDEA, said... Yeah, you've got all these studies, but where did the cannabis come from? Because the only real source of cannabis is the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, where the only legal supply in the United States is grown. So we don't know what you were studying. <laughs> oh, my God. Also, the, in ASA very ironically, it said, look, it may have been a compelling thing to say that the DEA had blocked <laughs> the ability for these studies to get any cannabis from the University of Mississippi. But you didn't bring that up in the original pleading. So this being appellate court, it's not admissible. (laughs) Wow. What's next for you? What's on the horizon before the end of the year? Anything? To the end of the year, just getting through the licensing process and trying to get this notion of legalization here 
in Washington to not just be a notion, but to actually have physical locations. Pretty much my primary focus, you know, of course, I'm looking at other states, but as you say, that's problematic because there are policy issues with that, so you have to be really careful about setup. But I'm attempting to create a vehicle that will be a model, yeah? Distance. Yeah, be a model. Yes. Um, show the rest of the world. Look, you know, we opened here and the sky didn't fall and there were no problems and there were no issues. In fact, statistics got better and youth use went down. And the big thing, youth availability to other substances went down. And so that's really what I'm focused on. But, you know, if I can just get through this year, 2013, it has been a wild ride. I'm sure. I am sure. If I can just get through it, I'm doing good. My last question before we finish, and first, I really appreciate your time and your leadership. When you interacted and you've been working with police departments and everything, how are they feeling about it? Where are they at about it? What is their view at this point? The local law enforcement leadership, they look at it and they understand the system as it is, is deeply broken. There's finally a movement in this country to get back into what's called community policing. Police that are not viewed as, you know, the enemy. Police that, you know, back in, in, a, in a time where you would look up and see a policeman and say, oh, cool, great, I'm glad he's here, as opposed to... Um, you know, uh, an us versus them mentality. And really, the police, the professionals, they don't really like that. They want to be positive in their community. They want people to, you know, be happy when they arrive. And it's the drug war that really started it. You know, the whole specter of black uniformed paramilitary masked people breaking down your door and shooting your dog. I mean, that whole notion came about because of the drug war, because it was thought, well, people could flush the drugs down their toilet and get rid of the evidence. So we don't want to knock and serve a warrant. We want to get in before they can destroy the evidence. Police professionals nowadays, they don't want to do that. And really, it's not just with cannabis, it's with all substances, really, that people are starting to say, that law enforcement is starting to say, look, if there's not a complaint, we don't care. But if there's a complaint, if there's a problem, you know, for whatever reason, you know, your neighbors are pissed off, whatever, uh, they're going to do something about it. But if if there's not a complaint, they're not going to go looking for trouble. I think in one of the articles, it was written that it's not hard to get a license for cannabis from the Liquor Control Board. Why do you think that is? Well, you've got to understand there's three licenses, producer, processor, and retailer. It is not going to be hard to get a license from the Liquor Control Board to be a producer. The retailers, which is my market segment, they are restricted in the numbers that are going to be allowed. They're going to cap the overall amount of growers at 2 million square feet, which sounds like a lot, but really isn't. And if the overall amount exceeds 2 million, they're just going to pair everyone back by a percentage. But you still have to comply. Getting a license is difficult in that you still have to go to your locality. I mean, this might be a state program, but understand that local rules apply. So go to your building department in Bremerton and say, hey, look, I'm making a marijuana facility. I need a building permit. And they might not be as excited to give you a permit as the Liquor Control Board was excited to give you a license. There's a lot of complexities in this market. I play in it every day, and I assure you, 
it is not as easy as it sounds. Oh, I don't think any of it is easy. And that's why I appreciate your stewardship. I don't think any of it's easy. And there's so many layers and levels of it. I mean, the vigilance that you have to have just to be in the day-to-day, I can't even imagine. I want to thank you for taking your time to come on It's Rainmaking Time and to share where you're at and what's going on and where the leadership is right now and what we can take an interest in and go to bat for you, for the rest of the people of America, by the way. So thank you for what you're doing. I appreciate you having me on, and I'd be happy to do it anytime. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking with, learning from, and listening to John Davis, the chairman of the Northwest Patient Resource Center. If you would like to find out more about him, you can go to N like Nancy, W like Wynn, P like Peter, R like Ricky, and C like Charlie, dot C-O. John, thanks so much. Have a great day. It's rainmaking time. 